0: me invite you to open them to the book of Philippians chapter number four. Philippians chapter four. Uh, As you are planning out your week, because I know you'll do that uh, this afternoon, won't you? Make sure every day's scheduled. Uh, This Wednesday night, Hosu uh, will be sharing his ministry here. Um, Hosu is a... Pastor in Hungary, he's been with us over a month and a half, and uh, yeah, won't you just stand up, Hosu? <coughs> he, he does have prayer cards, so you, can, so you can get one of those from him, uh, but he'll be sharing his ministry about the church in Hungary uh, this coming Wednesday night, so you'll want to be here for that, 7 o'clock, uh, make sure you make plans for that. We was greatly encouraged by his uh, message Sunday night uh, over communion. Uh, So we're looking forward to that. Well, we've been going through a series in the book of Philippians and uh, walking through, looking at Paul's uh, encouragement and instructions for us, and this great letter concerning joy uh, and uh, many other things. Um, It is my plan to finish the series next Sunday, uh, so you can uh, be anticipating that. I want to read this morning beginning in verse number 10 of chapter 4, and I'm going to read down through verse number 20, though we want to focus in on the first 13 verses, or 10 to 13. The Bible says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I speak in being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaproditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Two notable verses found in this section of scripture. Verse number 13 and of course verse number 19. Uh, Pray with me just a moment. Father we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we can gather together this morning. Just pray that you will... Use it as an encouragement, instruction for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Augustine has famously said in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It is a good image because in my mind it reminds me of the endless movement of the ocean back and forth beating upon the shore. Rest is what we are looking for, and just like love, we tend to look in all the wrong places. We tend to find or search or give our attention to all the wrong things to find rest in. Contentment may be best described as peace, and we'll look at that in just a moment, but discontentment is that, that never-ending longing, that restlessness which abides in our soul. It is a prosperous business to say the least. Everyone is seeking to remind us that you're missing something in your life and unless you have this, then you'll never find true peace or happiness or serenity or rest, whatever it may be. It may be an object, it may be a person, it may be a status, it may be uh, some kind of comfort of finances, whatever it is. We find ourselves living continually searching for that rest or satisfaction or the Bible speaks of contentment. Many of you may have heard of the story of Alexander the Great at the end of his conquest when he had finished conquering all of the armies uh, in his kingdom all of the nations. He looked over the lands and wept bitterly because there was nothing left to conquer. That restlessness which lives in all of us. Now we saw earlier in chapter number 3 there is a godly restlessness and that is our desire to know Christ and longing and pursuing after that but we also know there is an ungodly and an unuseful restlessness that lives within us. Paul wants to help us with that As he speaks about the subject of contentment here. uh, Showing and revealing to us his own contentment. Well, let's begin in verse number 10 because he begins it in an odd place. The Bible says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Uh, and beginning in verse number 10, we come to see one of the reasons Paul is writing his letter to the church. It is a thank you letter, uh, at least this part of it. He's acknowledging that they had given him a gift, they have sent him some kind of resources to sustain him as he's living in, uh, in Rome. He's under house arrest and so naturally he would have to pay for his food and lodging and, and all of the necessities that would take place there it would be left upon Paul or friends of Pauls and and acquaintances of Paul to make sure his daily needs are met Rome didn't put him up and give him three meals a day uh, it wasn't like that and, and so here Paul is acknowledging this gift that he receives he's showing his gratitude and his thankfulness as he is writing to them and uh, and in a kind of odd way we wouldn't go to Hallmark and find Philippians 10 through 13 and say, Oh, there's a good thank you letter. You just wouldn't find that because, in our minds, it's just hard to see how they go together. Well, he begins by stating this, and many people argue, Well, it seems very thinkless. In fact, many people say, Paul here is giving them a slight rebuke. You, oh, finally, you're sending to my needs and helping me. <laughs> you know, I know you wanted to, but you never did. Notice he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length. Or finally, as some have suggested, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but now you finally acted on it, as some would suggest. Well, that's not at all what Paul is saying. In fact, what we find in the beginning of this, he says, As upon receiving Epaproditus and the gift which they received, he rejoiced greatly. You see that in past tense, verse number 10. It was a cause for him to give God praise, to, to thank God for God's provision and the kindness and the generosity which which his friends and the church and the partners in the gospel had shown to him. Well, as he begins this, he tells them, I've rejoiced, I've received it. He shows his gratitude, and he says, I know you always wanted to care for me, but whatever the reason is, you didn't have opportunity. Uh, but now thank God, or now by God's grace you have you have given the chance to be able to act upon your desires. And we don't know why they weren't able to send to him, whether they didn't have the money, we know they were a poor church, or whether they just didn't know where he was or what the need was, but nevertheless, there had been a time a gap between there. And so we understand that in thinking, we acknowledge the gift, we acknowledge the giver and, and so we we write those thank you cards and we we show that kind of appreciation. So it seems kind of weird leaving from that and Paul going in verses 11 through 13 to speak about, oh, by the way, I wasn't in need. And I'm not saying all of this to you because I was in want. Uh, in fact, I, I am content the way I was before I got the gift or after I got the gift. It's kind of the idea that you have here. Now some suggest the reason that the language here in verse 11 and 12 and 13, well we know it's because of the Holy Spirit, because we believe all scripture is breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit is teaching us something here, but, but some believe that Paul is wanting to guard his relationship with the church. There was in the Roman era this kind of friendship or kindness that was more of a, um, based upon what we give and get. It was the lowest form of friendship. They they argued, and it was called utilitarian, or basically, I need something, you got it, so I get it, and then I reciprocate something uh, to you for meeting my needs. And so there was this kind of base relationship. Now Paul may be guarding that, but he reminds us that his delight in them was in them, not in their stuff. It wasn't coveting what they had or what they could give. It wasn't desiring for them to meet his needs. His, his delight was in them, personal, as you see that. He, he says, It was your concern for me. That's personal. That's not, that's not taking it out of the realm of his delight in them and their relationship. In fact, in Philippians 1, we see the very same thing. Looking back with me, he says, in verse number 8. <clears throat> He says, for God is my witness, how I yearned for you all with the affection, I was about to say affliction, but it's affection of Christ Jesus. And he's showing here this kind of, this desire and this love for them. Something that is much greater than this kind of give and get mentality that we might find in the marketplace. Well, we know, beginning in verse number 11, that Paul was in need we know he rejoiced in their give but there's something to be said here beginning in verse number 11 that he wants them to understand that is his rest his peace of mind his rejoicing in God was not attached or dependent upon their provision rather was and is dependent upon his communion and relationship with Christ He could say what he says to them in verse 11 through 12 because he had learned how to be content. And that's what we want to look at this morning and the remainder of our time together. Namely, what is contentment? Secondly, how do we get it? Third, how do we lose it? What is contentment? How do we get it and how do we lose it? Well, let me just say contentment is a universal virtue. All the way back to the philosophers in Greek, all the way through centuries and every culture has this idea, uh, this virtue which is praised, held up and longed for, preached and that is contentment. It is not easy to define in one sense because we all have different ideas of what it might be. Uh, Some suggest contentment is our chief source of happiness. Defined by others as the virtue of having enough. I read one article from one Ph.D. psychologist who went out someplace to an unreached people group and he found that contentment translated in that culture of enough. Enough. That's how they come to understand what contentment was. It was enough. Others suggest it is the idea of learning to be satisfied. Actually, out of curiosity, because I was Googling on YouTube, or I was on YouTube Googling, or not Googling, On you know what I was doing, you get it, right? I was somewhere at some point, whether in the body or out of the body, I know not. So I, on YouTube, and I typed in contentment just to see what I would find. And there I found a a prosperity gospel preacher preaching on contentment. I said, surely this has got to be interesting. What has he got to say about contentment? I waded through, skipped a little, waded through, and I finally said, I got enough. I'm done. But he defined contentment as... um, Satisfied while you're on your way up to the next level. I think you missed the point. How to be satisfied while you're on your next level of blessings. Waiting for the next, you know, you're getting upgraded. That's nice. Some of us are still waiting for our first upgrade. Well, contentment in the Greek culture in in the society which paul is writing was highly praised and sought after uh, and chiefly among the stoics william barclay in his commentary on contentment defines it for us at least in paul's culture if if you want to make a man happy uh, then do not add to his possessions but take away his desires get to a place to where you want nothing to where man can learn to be an island, or self-sustained, or self-sufficient. To where nothing outside of yourself, whether good or bad, can, can hurt you, move you, or, or shift you in any way, affect you. It is the idea of, of unplugging from all of, the, all of the things in life in such a way or steal yourself from the things in life in such a way to where you, you get that cavalier attitude of it doesn't matter. In fact, not only did they think that the desires, uh, taking away man's desires, if you want nothing, then you will learn to be content, uh, but it also had this, uh, had this thing of if you feel nothing, If you're able to lose a a pet, then that's great, that's how you start, But, but what if you're able to lose a family member and you're unmoved by it and your emotions are not stirred up and then you just continue on to where you're emotionally detached from all of the outer circumstances that you face. So it's found in our detachment of desires, our detachment of emotions, it is something of a fatalistic lifestyle, it just is what it is. We might say it this way, is best described as a man that is sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the forces of circumstances. You might think, well, that's unattainable. But I would say in our modern culture, we find that more attractive than we want to admit. We can tough it up and deal with it, By her own sheer power and will. That was the Greek Stoics and philosophers. But it is a man who wants nothing and feels nothing, who delights in nothing. He is never disappointed, never dejected, never aroused to anger or discouraged. But he is also one who has never truly loved. One who has never truly enjoyed the warmth of of joy and happiness and delight which God gives us, the children of men, and the toil in this life. He might be a machine or a block of wood, but I would tell you, as I was thinking about that, at least a block of wood burns when you put fire to it. It is a man who is unmoved, or a woman Well, that can't be what Paul is talking about when he says in verse number 11, Now I am speaking in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation to be content. One Puritan writer helps us defining contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking complacency in God's wise and fatherly dispose in every condition. That's kind of wordy, isn't it? You can look up Jeremiah Burroughs and find it for yourself. A more recent definition of contentment could be an inward assurance in God's sovereignty and His goodness that produces the fruit of joy and peace and thanksgiving in the life of a believer regardless of outside circumstances. If I could put it simply, faith resting in God that produces peace and joy no matter what you face, that's contentment. Paul reminding us here and reminding the church in Philippi that contentment is not found in self-sufficiency but found in dependency. Not from one's willpower but from the power and enablement of God. Verse number 13. Contentment is found in Augustine's words finding rest in Christ sufficient in every circumstance to keep us. Well, well, that's good. That's what it is. How do we get it? We have seen enough examples of futility in chasing the wind. Ecclesiastes is a book written to the modern culture of what uh, what restlessness looks like as we pursue peace or whatever it is we're pursuing. There is the temptation that you and I face—that the next job or a spouse or children or a vacation or whatever else might provide that promise, that, that promise of rest and peace and settlement which we're looking for. All of that is an illusion. Oh. Contentment, to say it this way, and biblical Christian contentment is not natural to us. It is something that must be learned. That's what Paul is saying here in verse number 11 and 12. Notice with me, verse number 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The word secret here in verse number 12 is like the initiation rites of the mystery religion, the things that you would go through to get in on the inside. I think there's probably clubs like that in our modern day that have this, you know, you've got to know the secret handshake to get in or, or whatever it is. And Paul's saying that he, he, he's learned the lessons, he's, he's learned the secret of what it means to be content. He knows what it is to have steak, to put it in our modern terms, and he knows what it is to only have ramen noodles. I said only because I know some of you like those things, and I didn't want to offend you this morning. He knows what it is to have excess in the bank and to not care about what's going on. He knows what it is to wonder how he's going to pay for the next meal or the lodging or whatever else he needs. He has learned the secret of how to live in that state. So let me just say by way of how do we get it. First, let me say it is something that we learn through the experiences of this life. It doesn't come natural. It is something through, through the ebb and flow of the seasons that we go through that God is continually teaching us and giving us a lesson on. Our experience becomes our educator in what it means and how you and I are to be content. But it needs more than just experience because, well, let's just face it, we've been through a lot. And many times we go through those things and we're unmoved and unchanged. So secondly, I would say going back to our Puritan's definition of contentment, uh, there's the, the source of it comes from God himself. Contentment is a gift of God. It is from God. Not just our experiences. Paul's disposition rests in God. He can find contentment in whatever circumstance he is in because he is trusting, he is submitting to God. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, I think there's many truths that you could bring out by that. I just want to list a few for you if you're taking notes. One, he's come to understand, he's come to trust and rest in the sovereignty or the providence of God. We began our scripture reading this morning with uh, Jesus' teaching on how to, to deal with anxiety in your life. Part of that section in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that God knows exactly where each and every one of us are at this particular moment. At the same time. Isn't that, isn't that just blow your mind? He knows exactly what you're thinking when I said that. And you're like, get the word out. And I got it out. Thank you for your prayer. He knows exactly where we are. Part of our contentment, part of our our settling peace, rests in the fact that God is not oblivious and forgot where He put you. Or forgot what's going on in your life. All the intricate details and all the ins and outs and how you're processing what you're going through and where you are. He knows exactly where you are is a rest in the providence of God in knowing that, not only knowing where you are, but He knows exactly what you need. How many of you know what you need this morning? Nobody. That's not helpful, is it? At least two of you be like, I, I know exactly what I need. But well, God knows exactly what you need. He knows not only where you are, he knows, he knows where He's taking you. He just know what you're going to face. He knows exactly what you need in the moment, now and then. There's this idea of resting in this reality of God's providence in our life, but providence alone, uh, we need more than providence alone, more than just God's knowledge of us, His work in our life. But secondly, I would say it's in His provision or the provision of God. And chiefly we find this in the gift of Christ, don't we? All things are ours through Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places are ours through Christ Jesus. The chief provision which testifies and and boldly declares every other provision we need in life will be secured for us is found first in Christ. It is in Christ that we we are given that adoption. It is in Christ that we are brought into the family of God. It is in Christ that we are made sons of God. It is in Christ that we not only come to understand God's infinite wisdom and knowledge of our situation and our circumstances, but it is in Him that we call Him Abba Father. That we see that as God looks at us, we are more valuable than than stuff like dirt and flowers and animals. That's what Jesus was saying. As He's pointing to the providence of God and His care over creation, He says, In your anxiety, don't you understand you're more valuable than these things right here like a bird or flowers? We might say not only in the provision of God, of, of Christ, but with Him the gifts of prayer And the promises that He gives us to hold on to that transcends every uh, every one of our circumstances that endures through all of our situations in all of our trials. God has richly blessed us through His provisions. You and I cannot find contentment in God apart from Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ we find contentment in everything in life we go through because of God not only the providence of God and the provision of God but we find contentment we're taught contentment in the power of God it might be easy for us to think of contentment and God's provision in terms of plenty that's the steak when you got a steak on the grill kind of mentality but that means we're only content and we can only be content satisfied, happy, joyful, peaceful when things are going well that would discredit all of what Paul said earlier in this chapter to rejoice in the Lord always, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Now we 're come to understand this this generosity, this this stayingness, this this blessing of God through his power, enabling us both in our plenty and in our want. In fact, our experiences prove to us. The simple truth that God is faithful. Isn't that what Paul has come to understand? When he says, I've learned to be content in plenty and in want or in abundance or in need, isn't that really what he's saying? That in both cases, God has not changed and God has proven himself faithful? Well, he's still faithful, I would say that and just remind you of that this morning. When things were tight and you were scrapping things together, And calling it a gourmet dish because that's all you had and you were just throwing it together. Or when you had leftovers that you were throwing away because you just had too much. In all of those things, God's faithfulness is evident in our lives. And so Paul says, I can be content. You and I can learn contentment because of God's faithfulness. Our peace and joy rest in who He is. And and His faithfulness to us, not in the possession of things or the absence of those things. Notice how Paul says it in verse number 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, how many of you memorized that verse? Last time I said coffee cup verse, Remo bought me a coffee cup with a verse on it. <laughs> that is a powerful passage. That is a powerful promise, isn't it? It does not mean I can lift anything in the world as long as Christ is strengthening me. Would you agree with that? That I can jump tall buildings and and do all kinds of stuff as long as Christ strengthens me. I can do all things like that. Don't take your youth group or your kids and say, we're going to climb this high peak today. And when you get tired, I want you to quote this verse out of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we're going to make it to the top today, okay? Well, you might make it to the top. They uh, They might need an ambulance to help themselves on the way down. I was on a hike once at a men's conference. And the, the leader did not quote this verse. He actually looked at many of us who looked like we didn't need to be on the hike. He said, some of you need to understand this is not a time to start your um, exercise program. <laughs> some of you are not going to make this. <laughs> you need to go to a different hikes." So we don't rip this out of its context and, and, and kind of rob it of its beauty, of its substance. If you can't do math and you don't like math, don't claim this verse and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to pursue being a rocket scientist because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see the, the things that we sometimes do to the word of God. What we can say, Paul is saying, that I know how to live. I'm, I'm able to live faithfully in all circumstances. I know what it's like to, to be in, in I know what it's like to have without forgetting God. I know what it's like to be without, without cursing God. And that's the challenge, isn't it? As we think about needs and wants and those things like that, Paul says, I can navigate both every season of life, because it is Him who strengthens me. In both cases my eyes are fixed on. Christ, my joy and my peace is settled in Him. I would say, thirdly, not only is contentment from God; it is learned. But thirdly, it is in one way being satisfied with less. Now, some of you would think about contentment. You are like, when are we going to get to less? You know, get rid of the storage units and all the other stuff like that. And well, there is something to be said in First Timothy six five through ten, where he tells Timothy, some believe godliness is a means of gain but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take uh, we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these be content what is he saying we can be content in the basic meeting of our needs we can be content. We can have contentment. We can live satisfied, joyful, peaceful if we have food and clothing. He warns Timothy about those who are there. Verse number 9 of that passage. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Some are pursuing wealth at all costs. It is their delight, their goals, their love of, their worship of. And history has proven over and over it's been the downfall of many. In the church and out of the church. Here he instructs us to be satisfied, content, thankful with our basic necessities met by God. Again, the Stoics would say, well, that's what we need to do. We need to, to lower our wants, and right? Instead of raising our stuff, raising the stuff we get, we need to lower our wants, and maybe it will balance out and you can live a content life. Well, there's something to be said about that. Minimalists believe that, don't they? They get rid of stuff and you'll be happier just love the stuff you keep what if you get rid of stuff that you loved and you never mind that really sounds good on paper putting it into practice may be more difficult I will say this a little hope and instruction for us I hope this morning or I trust we can start by recognizing that not everything we want is a need not everything you want in life is a need. Most things we have in mind right now, most things that we want right now, it, n- most of them, I'm venturing out on a limb, is not on the same level of, have you ate this week? Or here in the wintertime, do you have a, a, a winter clothes? A, a jacket or a blanket? Now we see that disproportionate or that that stretching of the word need in our current culture. Our kids do it all the time, don't they? I need that toy. No, you don't. You don't need that toy, but they tell you they need the toy, and if you don't get me that toy, which will make me happy and satisfied and make you happy and satisfied by getting me that toy, I am going to explode in this store, and it actually might end the world. There's no way to enjoy my adolescent childhood without having this thing, this toy, this this thing I want. There's something to be said about our happiness being dependent upon whether I get something or not. But, you know, if we're honest, our children have good teachers, don't they? Now, we go into the store and we... we Harp on the children that act that way, but let's just be honest, they've got good they've got good instructors. We disciple very well. We say, I need this. I need a a spouse, I need kids. Sometimes we regret saying some of these things. I need money, I need a new car, I need new clothes, a boat, a new rifle. I'm trying to bring some of you guys in on this. You don't need those things. Many of those things Um, the problem is in our want our problem is saying our peace of mind our happiness, our joy is dependent upon our want is dependent on whether it's satisfied, whether it's met or whether it's not I don't think necessarily... Now, there are things we probably should quit wanting stuff, especially when we've got stuff everywhere. Maybe get rid of some stuff before you want some more. I mean, there's some wisdom in that. Would you agree? But I don't think Paul is saying that he he put a tourniquet on his want so it doesn't work anymore. I think what he's saying is that his peace of mind, his trust, his happiness, his joy, his, his contentment doesn't rest on the stuff. It rests in Christ which is unchanging whether he gets stuff, whether he doesn't get stuff, whether he has or he has not, whether it's, it's a bountiful season or whether it's not a bountiful season. He can live in a way that is content with peace because Christ is his. In fact, he says whether I live or whether I die, Christ is mine. There is joy found there, not in everything else. So let me just say thirdly in closing, what is contentment? What is resting in the providence and sovereignty of God? Finding our joy and peace in Him. How do we get it? Well, we get it through learning it. God showing His faithfulness and, and knowing who He is. We get it by keeping our needs and wants in check. I think that's a good way. But how do we lose it? The proverb writer says, Remove far from me my falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Definitely not an American prayer. And statement, is it? Give me what is needful for me. Now, There's the danger here, I think, in one way, how we lose it, is in the times of prosperity, we forget God. The Lord reminded Israel in Deuteronomy chapter number 8, that whole chapter warning them as they go in and possess the land, take heed that you do not forget the Lord your God when you're full and you have houses built and vineyards and those things like that. We forfeit our contentment because we begin putting our contentment and satisfaction in temporary things that are fleeting rather than finding it and our purpose in God himself, which is eternal in the hope that he gives to us. But another way we lose our contentment is comparing ourselves to others. And especially in times of difficulty, when things are hard, we, we, we begin to expect God to to work in our life or bless us or do things in our life the same way He does it in someone else's life. So as we're struggling with the providence of God and, and where we're at in life, we're, like, we're kind of skeptical, we don't want to say it out loud. But we begin to look at others and we begin to envy or covet or whatever it may be. We we lose contentment because we begin comparing ourselves against someone else. It's dangerous and foolish. And yet it is something that we fall into time and time again. It's not forgetting God. But rather really it's struggling with how he's running things in your life, isn't it? Now, we may not see it, or we may not say it out loud. Seldom do we do that. Now, some people of us are just bold we say what we think, right? There's no governor. It's missing somehow, somewhere along when we were born. So we say what we think. But in in, in many cases, when we fall into this, when we, we, we get into this state of discontent, it's not that we say it out loud, but really, internally, we're we're really questioning God's motives, Questioning His heart, His intent, His love. We read the verses, we hear them read, we hear people say it, But and that's true corporately, generally, kind of, but, but is it necessarily true in my life? Have you ever been there? God, I know You are love. It's what John said. I read it, memorized it. And that's true. And then somewhere along the way we put this exception, and the exception is us. We're the exception to the rule. You really love them. You kind of put up with me. Let's just be honest. He endures all of us in one way, but that does should never discredit his love for us. It is that restlessness, that struggle, and that's what that's what you see in our trials, isn't it? It's a struggle of faith. Our faith is, is wrestling with the promises, the written word of God, and the experience we have in this life, and, and we're laying hold of and, and that experience, and, and we have to break through. What does the Bible say? And the old kid's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know, little kid, at singing the song? Well, because the Bible told me so. It is when we cast our eyes off the goodness and grace of God. We begin begin looking at others. We begin looking at God with skepticism. It's a miserable place to be. It's miserable because it is an untrue place to dwell and live. And contrary to the word of God. We have come to a place... Not only doubting God's love for us, but we have equated love with certain outcomes in getting our wants met, which is unreasonable and dangerous. Exodus 34 6 reminds us of the nature and character of God, doesn't it? God speaking to Noah, Abraham, Noah, Moses, one of those guys in the Bible. <laughs> That's embarrassing, isn't it? speaking to Moses on the mount Israel just messed up really big they made a golden calf and they said this is the God Israel that's delivered you out of it I mean that is just insane and yet as God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34 and some of us it would be a good place for us to go visit this week that chapter and just read through that and he says he is a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is faithful. We are complete in him and satisfied. And can I just say, just to wrap this up this morning, you can rest in his good and wise fatherly care for you in whatever season of life you're in. You can find contentment, joy, and peace because he is unchanging. Let me just ask you this morning, those of you who are, each of you, do you know him as Father? And the Sermon on the Mount is read and your Heavenly Father is mentioned, is that is, is that something that you're familiar with? Is that a promise that you have? We made remarks about it as we talked about his providence, as we talked about his provision. Do you know him as Father? Is He your Heavenly Father? Some know Him as God or the big man upstairs or judge or a host of other things. But can you call Him Father? Can you call Him your Heavenly Father? The Gospel of John tells us how we can. He says in John chapter number 1, He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. There's something to be said. Not everyone will call Him Heavenly Father. But to all who did receive Him, who believed on His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Did you see that? Did you hear that? All who received Him, who believe on His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. He adopted into the family. He has not only said you are my son, but he has declared himself our father. Not only the privileges of being the son, but the privileges and the joy of, of him being our heavenly father. That's the promise of salvation that is the joy of adoption and it's given to all who receive him, all who believe on his name. And if you've not done that, outside of the family of God, you can this morning. You can turn from your own ways and turn to Him. Put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And He says, all who believe, who receive, He gives the right to become the children of God. It is a gift of God. And what a gift it is bow with me for a word of prayer thank you for this time we gathered this morning lord we just praise your holy name thank you for your fatherly care in our life thank you for the joy and peace you give us well thank you for the reminders of your blessings blessings that we have in christ and and lord you've committed yourself to us as being our father to care for our needs and sustain us, empower us, enable us. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning, any here that does not know you, God, that they would they would come to know the blessedness of what it means to be a child of God. It is theirs, it can be theirs in Christ if they would just by faith receive him. I pray by the Holy Spirit that you would, you would work that in their hearts right now. Lord, I pray for all of us as we gather together and we fight a culture that keeps telling us more and And that we would fight against it and find our peace, happiness, our security, our joy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.